Our uh, passage today that we're going to look at in detail is from Hebrews. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I want to encourage you to turn there with me to that passage. Um, I will, it will be up on the screen at least um, for a, uh, a moment, um, and then you can, you can follow along there, but I will be referring back to it as we go, so you might want to open up your device or a Bible, or there are a, a handful of Bibles underneath the chairs too, if you, if you want to grab one like that. Um, we're going to be looking at um, <clears throat> a passage that has always been very significant to me, um, as I have understood um, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church, um, who we are, and, and why we are the church. And so, um, without further ado, let's, let's read this together. Well, I'll read it aloud as you follow along silently. But we're again in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 25. Let me read this to you. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will speak through me. And speak through these words. May your Holy Spirit um, in, illuminate these words. Shed light on them into our hearts. Give us understanding. Grant us power, Lord, to do as you have called us to do. The things that you are going to call us to be and to do and to believe and to think. Today, may we have the power by your Spirit to do them and walk in them as we leave this place today. We just pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. By God's grace, we are the church. By God's grace. And it's by His grace from first to last. Always has been, always will be. Our future is God's grace. Our present is God's grace. By God's grace, we are the church. I want to point out three um, related truths to that that are in this passage today about, about God's grace. Um, but before I do, I want to talk about God's grace. Let's talk about, let's look at God's grace in this passage together today. The author of Hebrews here is concluding a quite lengthy um, section of of the letter that he's written, where he's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking about Jesus being greater than the prophets, uh, greater than what was revealed before, greater than the Old Testament, greater than angels, uh, greater than uh, the priestly system, greater than the sacrifices, uh, greater than the temple and the tabernacle. 
Jesus is greater in all ways. And he's been talking about Jesus as, as the, the a high priest, a great high priest that far surpasses the earthly high priests that the people of Israel used to know. And that the people, even in the time of the author here, um, were aware of and knew. Jesus is better. Jesus, in fact, as a high priest, makes a way for us to be with God, our Creator. The old, in fact, the, into, the entire Old Testament system um, was in place so that people could know God and be present with Him. Um, so that they could know their Creator. The way to God, the way to the Creator had been shut. Do you remember the story? The story of God, think back to your Sunday school lessons. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, a serpent, a temptation, a tree that they were not supposed to, to eat from, yet they did it anyway. And they fall and they are cast out of the garden, cast out of God's presence where they fellowshiped with Him on a regular basis. The way was shut, but it was opened later through the tabernacle. And then again, later on than that, the temple with the priests offering continual sacrifices of, of animals so that the blood would pay for their sin so that they could know God. But one of the problems with that was that not everybody had access to that, that place where God was, where He dwelt. First in the tabernacle, in the most holy place, and in the in the temple later, in the holy places. The priests were the only ones who could enter that place and be where God's presence was with His people. Jesus, though, cleared the way. He made a way. He opened up access to our Creator so that we could know Him and that He could know us. Look at what He says here, um, how He describes it. In these verses, look at verse 19 with me if you would. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy places were the places of God's presence. There were, there were two separate um, parts of the temple. There's a holy place and then there was a most holy place where the, where the high priest could only go in once a year where God's presence was. Well, the author here says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we can enter the holy places. How or why? It's by the blood of Jesus, by His death on the cross, His once-for-all sacrifice. The writer of, the, of Hebrews talked about that earlier. Um, in chapter 9, you don't have to turn there with me, but I'll, I'll look, I'll read these verses to you. He writes this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, the tent of His body, in other words, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, the animal sacrifices, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He later says this, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, right into God's presence. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once 
for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By God's grace, as we're talking about, well, this is it. By God's grace, Jesus has made a way for us to know God. He has created, in verse 20, the writer says, a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. It's a new way, not the old way. It's a new covenant, not the old covenant. It kind of reminds me, if you think about it, think about some things that have, that some new ways of doing things that you've experienced. Um, for, for some of us, it's, uh, over our lifetimes, it's television or um, personal computers or the internet or, um, or, or maybe this new way, right? A smartphone or, um, I was thinking about this, uh, Netflix. <laughs> Where are all the video stores? I remember when you could browse down aisles of, and find videos and go, I'm going to take that home and go home and plug it into my machine. But now it's just punch a button, there it is, uh, on your screen. There's just a new way of doing things and new ways are happening all the time. Jesus created a new and living way to access God. A way that's not going to be superseded by something new beyond it. <laughs> it's a once-for-all new way. There won't be a Jesus 2.0, um, except for maybe if you want to talk about the, His coming again, His second coming, I guess that would be it. But for now, we have the way, the new, the fresh, the, the recent living way for access to God. through He says through a curtain. The curtain was what the priests would pass through. It was a veil that separated um, the, holy, the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And it was symbolic of the, the, the barrier that was between um, man and God. And they would pass through the curtain. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that... Um, he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, uh, an access or, or access to that new and living way, or to God. The new and living way is His flesh, after all. And it is through His flesh, through His broken body, that we all can know our Creator. And who is the one? Verse 21, he says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God... Well, I've already mentioned before how the writer of Hebrews has said Jesus is a great priest. He is, a, he is the great high priest. He is the, the heavenly high priest that has given us access to God. We don't need a human mediator any longer. No more human representation so that we can have access to Him. And He is over the house of God. Um, one thing you might think of when you see house of God, you might remember if you know the story in the Old Testament, how the temple was called the house of God. But here in the New Testament, I think it has a, an, a, has a double meaning. It's not only uh, imagining a building or a temple, which he's been talking about in his letter, but it's imagining a family. The house of God or is, is the same word for a household a household of God, a family, which is all over in the New Testament describing believers who are part of God's family. The church, by God's grace, we are the church.
So this household of God, this house of God, I believe he's saying very specifically that Jesus is the great priest over God's family so that we can be his children, so that we can know our Creator. How many of you have ever wanted to meet uh, the president at any time, past or present, right? I mean, most of us probably want to raise our hands. Well, I'd, I'd love to meet the president. Some, sometimes, man, I'd love to shake his hand, or I mean, I'd love to tell the president a few things, too. I mean, may, I don't know how, however you feel about it, but to meet somebody important like that would be a, a, a pretty big deal, wouldn't it? Imagine if you had that kind of access. You could just pick up the phone and say, Hey, Mr. President, just thought I'd call, say hi, I have some ideas for you. Um, in fact, actually, I have a request of you. <laughs> Could you do this for me? Could you do that for me? You've got the power. You have the authority. You can make this happen. Could you do that for me? Not very many of us have that kind of access. In fact, I'd argue that none of us here have that access. There may be some who do, but what if you were his child? <laughs> Do you think his children have access to him? Can knock on the door and say, yeah, I mean, there are going to be times when you say, not right now, I'm busy, I got this thing going on, I got that thing going on. But when it comes down to it, wouldn't a child have access to the president in a way that we could never have? Right? And that's the kind of access that Jesus provides us. By God's grace, we know our Creator and are known by Him. By God's grace, we can draw near to Him. And that is what He says next. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says he, to, to draw near. That's to approach, to come to. That's, that, that, that was how they described um, the priest and even the people. They would approach the temple and then the priest would say, we've got it, we'll take it from here. And then they would approach and draw near into the temple, into God's presence. But, Jesus, but the writer here is saying, we all can draw near. We can all Go to God. We can go to Him. And he says, with a true heart, a genuine, true, real, sincere heart, a full assurance of faith, confidence and certainty that we will be heard with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I take those two phrases together. They, they kind of represent, they, they hearken back to the Old Testament rituals of sprinkling or washing that took place when the priests would, would do ritual sprinkling of, of all of the temple items to make them holy so that they could be used by God or, or for God in the temple for worship. And they would even go through ritual washings prior to ordination, prior to um, going into their time of service. But the washing and the sprinkling that the author is talking about here is what is done spiritually by the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith in Jesus, our hearts are sprinkled clean. Well, we may have, we may still battle with an evil conscience. We may still battle with sin, but according to God in His economy, our hearts are sprinkled. 
Our bodies have been made pure so that we can be in His presence. So that spiritually speaking, God looks at us and says, Jesus paid for you. I see my perfect son, the perfect sacrifice. You can come to me. You are my child through Christ. It doesn't always feel that way. In fact, um, we don't always feel like we have a true heart. We don't always feel like we have full assurance of our faith. We don't always feel like we have that confidence. But, but the author here is saying that because of Jesus, we already have a true heart. We already have and can have that assurance of faith. Our hearts can be sprinkled clean. Our bodies washed with pure water through the Holy Spirit. This is the work of salvation that he's describing. This is the work of salvation that gives us special access to God, personal access to God. And what must we do about it? So if that's true, and if Jesus has already done that, then what's our responsibility? Our responsibility, according to this, is to take advantage of it. Take advantage of the fact that we can pick up the phone call and, and call the president. Take advantage of the fact that the king of the universe is our father, who loves us, who, has, who gives us access to him. So we go to him anytime, anywhere. We have access to God. We can draw near to him. We can go to him. Back in, in chapter 4, verse 16, the writer says this, I, I love it. I've always been encouraged by this. Uh, 4 verse 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Well, the passage we're looking at here is just kind of repeating that same idea. But what does he tell the, the, the readers earlier? He says, To draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By God's grace... We have access to God. We can know our Creator so that we can receive more grace. That's pretty awesome. Don't you think? That's pretty exciting <laughs> that we can do that. Imagine, if you will, and maybe you don't have to imagine this, a child who grows up maybe neglected, unloved, abandoned, and then one day finds a true family. A family that loves him. Maybe, maybe this is a child. We, were, we just finished reading a story together as a family about a, a boy who discovers that his whole life up to that point has been, well, I wouldn't say a lie so much as he's been living the wrong life. And he realizes that he is a child of a king. And it changes everything. But what would it be like for that boy? If after discovering that, that he is a, a, a prince and that he has access to the king of the land, that he goes back to the old fishing village. He goes back to his old rags. He goes back to his old way of life. Maybe it's because he can't believe it's true. Maybe it's because he's, there's just something going on in his mind, some, something triggering him um, that he just can't shake his old ways of doing things. And so he would rather live a way, he would la rather live the old way ra and be satisfied uh, by the old things that used to satisfy him. 
He can't believe the Father loves him. He can't believe that that's his family now, that that's his true identity. But that's what's happening in salvation. We become God's children. And we are given a new heart by God through the blood of Jesus. We are given assurance of faith through what He has done for us. Our hearts and our bodies have been cleansed and sprinkled. But yet we go back. We go back to the old ways. We go back to the old things. We go back to getting our needs satisfied with the old things. When God is saying, draw near to me. So what must we do? Take advantage of that. With confidence, go before Him. In prayer, go before Him. In the Word, asking, knocking, seeking. Because He's asking us to draw near. By God's grace, we know our Creator. By God's grace, though, we keep our faith. That's the second thing I want to point out in the big scheme of things here. He says this in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. This is our expression of confession. The other one was uh, about salvation, and now this is, our, this is confession about what we believe, about what we hold on to, about what we keep. Hold fast means don't let it go. We hold on to it. Hold tight to it. Our confession is... Uh, in, 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 this, uh, in the Bible is, is like a profession of faith, um, saying this is what I believe, this is what I hold dear, this is what I stake my life on. And it's interesting that he says it's a confession of our hope. We usually think of confession as a confession of faith, which is why I said by God's grace we keep our faith. But here he says it's a confession of our hope. Why hope? Because faith is not faith unless it hopes. Hope is about, is about what is coming. Hope is about the future. It, you can't have faith in anything unless you hope that it's going gonna, it's gonna to fulfill its function. Um, it's going to um, uphold its bargains. It's going to meet its promises. You can't have faith without hope. In fact, <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says this not a few paragraphs later. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. By faith, he describes in, in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham went to a place. By faith, Moses did what he did. By faith, all of the heroes of the Old Testament obeyed God, not knowing what was going to happen, but hoping that God would keep His promises. And he says to do this without wavering. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Imagine the image of, of without wavering is... Um, a pole, maybe. Um, you could think of a lamp pole. I'm thinking of Thanksgiving Eve in Moxie. <laughs> when six, or was it seven? I think it ended up being seven electrical poles fell down. And I thought, well, they were not unwavering. They fell down uh, in the middle of the day, and we lost power for how many hours? 16 hours? Um, 20 hours? Something like that. Um, without wavering means <laughs> that thing's not coming down. It's going to hold fast. I think about my little, my cherry trees in the back. They're, just like, they're two years old, not, not even two years old. And we had some 
massive winds blowing through, and one of my cherry trees moved. <laughs> it was in one place, and now it's in a different place, and it's at a slightly different angle. But it's still there. It's still there. And isn't that what it's like sometimes with us? <laughs> that we go through these times of difficulty, life hits us, the winds blow, and then we step back and take a look at our lives and we thought, my, my life is at a slightly different angle now. But I'm still firm. I'm still in the foundation. And that is, I believe, what the author is trying to tell us. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Without wavering. Why? Ah, thank you. Thank you, good author of the New Testament. He gives us a reason. He says it right here. For, or another way of describing that is because, here's the reason, he who promised is faithful. So last night, um, we were reading as a family. We're going to try really hard to read the Bible as a family this year. Um, I'll tell you in a few months how that goes. Um, but for now, I mean, we're, we're reading and we're reading Matthew's, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And, and I asked the question, what does this story show us about God? And what was the answer? He keeps His promises, right? right? He keeps His promises. Isabella's wondering, uh, what is He getting at? What is He going to say? He keeps His promises. All through Matthew chapter 1 and 2, the, the writer, Matthew writes this, this was to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet. This was to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet. Five, six times just in the first couple of chapters of Matthew to point out that God is faithful. He keeps His promises. He does what He says He's going to do. We sang about that earlier today too in, in the song Amazing Grace. He keeps His promises. We can... Hold fast the confession of our hope because we have something to hope in. We hope in a God who keeps His promises. He doesn't waver. He's faithful. It's not, and our faith and our hope, um, when I say by God's grace we keep our faith, I don't mean that we keep our faith by, by holding on to our resolve. We don't keep our faith through our own faithfulness of I'm good, I've done good. We don't keep our faith through our own understanding. I've got this figured out. I don't doubt anymore. No. We keep our faith because God is faithful. He is the basis for it. It's His character. It's His nature to be a faithful God. And so, we keep our faith by God's grace. Do you see what he's saying? That's, what, that's, that's the grace at work right there. It's God's grace that helps us to keep our faith. So when life does get difficult, do we waver? Do we shake? Do we collapse? Do we remember that the rock on which we are, uh, are, are fixed, the ground in which we are planted, the cornerstone that is the foundation of our faith is God? We may be weak, but He is strong. And, he, and we are strong because we are in Him. By God's grace, we keep our faith. By God's grace, we love our church. This is kind of the good part. These last couple of verses that <clears throat> always encourage me 
Listen to what he says again at verse 24. And let us consider how to, <clears throat> excuse me, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. <clears throat> and all the more, <clears throat> excuse me, as you see the day drawing near. By God's grace, we love our church. <laughs> By God's grace, we love our church. This is the experience of mission together. We've seen how, how, how the author wants to tell us about per salvation, about a personal uh, relationship with Jesus or with God through Jesus. We've seen how he wants us to experience the confession of faith. And now we see how he wants us to experience the mission of loving one another and of others. He says, let us consider, which means to pay attention to, or carefully think about. How often do you carefully think about the church? <laughs> it's almost always the professional, quote-unquote, I'm going to use quotes on that, the professional Christians, people who are in ministry, quote-unquote, pastors or, or whatnot, who are thinking about the church and carefully considering. But this is for each and every one of us. Let us consider, all of us consider, think about this, ponder, dwell on how we can stir up one another. Stir up one another? So the word here would probably be more accurate to, to say it's like agitate, or provoke, or a little more mildly, to rouse. Hey, hey, you know, wake up. Let's, let's love. Let's do some love and good works. Here we go. Let's, let's go love people. Let's do some good works. But the word there is a, a brisk word. It's, it's translated as anger, or make angry in other parts of the New Testament. It reminds me, I guess I was thinking about this when I thought of when I thought of the fact that one of the translations could be agitate, I was thinking of, there's like this thing in a washing machine that's called an agitator, right? I'm like, and it always bugs me. That's supposed to be a joke. It agitates, but okay. Um, but what does it do? It stirs things up, right? It stirs up the laundry. It stirs up the clothes that are in there and the, and the detergent and gets it all clean, right? It does its purpose, it agitates things. And the author wants us to agitate one another. To do good works. To love. And uh, these words are together. To stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, to experience or express active love demonstrated by service to one another. We know that that's how God wants us to love each other because Jesus, uh, at the Last Supper, He said, hey, all of you, uh, put your feet out here. I'm going to wash them for you. And then He said, now, I have washed your feet. You also are to wash one another's feet. And that's how you're going to love one another. We know that Love is demonstrated by service for one another. And that's basically what the author here is getting at. To love and good works. Stir up one another. Agitate one another. Provoke, provoke each other. Or another way to put it is to prod. Prod each other. Go. Come on. Let's do this. Let's, let's love people more. 
Let's, let's help people in need. Let's give our time. Let's give our money. Let's volunteer. Let's, let's, let's work with children. Um, let's accept the call to become a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a church planter or a greeter or a sound technician or a musician and a piano player or an encourager or a witness. Um, who, uh, who have I missed here? A bulletin folder. Um, what is God calling you to do in service to other people? What, had, what do you see in others that God's calling them to do, to do? Are you agitating them? Are you prodding them in that direction? Are you stirring them up? Hey, have you explored this? Have you looked into this? Let's do this. This is our mission. Let's do love and good works. Yet, it's hard to provoke one another, stir up one another, um, if we're not spending any time together. It's really difficult to do that. That's why he said, not neglecting to meet together. And some of our translations say, say do not neglect to meet together um, as a command. And there, there's, that's the force of it right there. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Do not forsake gathering together. The formal gathering of God's people. I think that's what the author is trying to communicate here. He's, he's not talking about just hangout times, which are important too, and we ought, we ought to do those things too. But he's thinking specifically, and he, the word he uses of meet together is a specific word of a gathering of God's people, formally gathering together, which is why we formalized a membership covenant, because we want to have some kind of formalization of this is what we mean when we gather together. This is who we are when we gather together. And we don't, we don't want to neglect that because the church is the people, right? The church is the people. It's not a building. It's not an organization so much, although there is some organization involved. But the church is the people. But it's not just the people doing their own thing. The church is when it gathers together. In fact, the word for church in the New Testament, ecclesia, means the gathering of the people. It means the gathering. So, we are the people of God when we gather together as family, as God's people, as the household of God, as he said before. But, the habit of some people, he said, is not to do that. Is The habit of some is to neglect to meet together. And, uh, I thank God, as I meditated on this and I studied these passages, that He doesn't dime anybody out. It's really easy to dime people out when you're talking about meeting together, right? Or neglecting to meet together. Well, what about so-and-so? Well, we haven't seen so-and-so in the church for six months. Or, well, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? But the writer of Hebrews isn't diming anybody out. He's saying, you know, some people don't, don't, don't meet together regularly. They're missing out on the grace that is available when the family of God gathers together and worships. This is not meant to be, uh, I think, a, uh, a barb um, to, to make you feel bad. But this is meant to encourage us. 
Some people have, and, and you know some of them, and maybe you've said some of the things like this too, that, well, I can worship God in this way or that way. I, I worship God best when I'm out in nature or I, uh, on my own privately or... Or maybe I've heard the, the first person I had a chance to witness to in college said, to, said this to me. So young ladies, you'll be in college soon and you'll hear people say this. Well, I'm okay with spirituality, but I'm just not a fan of organized religion. Right? So they'll say that. And I think they still say that. And, and I've got to be honest with you, sometimes I'm not a fan of organized religion either because some of the way, some of the way that religion is organized is pretty messed up sometimes. But what they really mean is they don't want to have anything to do with God's people and they don't want to have anything to do with maybe maybe something similar to that, the standards that God has set for us as a people as well for our own lives. <clears throat> but I would, you know, question whether they are opposed to <clears throat> organized sports or organized highway transportation system or maybe organized um, human resources or payroll. Because we all like things to be organized when they affect us. So, you know, oh, anyway, enough of that. But you see what I'm saying. But instead of, 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 of not meeting together, he says this, but encouraging one another. Another word for that is exhortation, which is a strong word of, of not just Encouragement like, it's okay, it's going to be okay, you'll be all right. But exhortation like, hey, you can do this. You can do this. Okay? We got this. We'll do it together if we have to. It's a strong encouragement to fulfill the mission of the church, which in part is to provoke love and good works, which he just said, loving service. And he says it this way. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is he talking about? Well, actually, he's talking about Jesus 2.0. So there we go. We got to that. He's talking about when Jesus comes again. The day is drawing near. And for the writer of the Hebrews, which was almost 2,000 years ago, 1950 years ago or so, the writer here is saying the day is drawing near. Be ready for it. And we, almost 2,000 years later, are wondering, okay, when is Jesus going to return? We're still waiting. And so wouldn't you think that it's all the more important to encourage one another and meet together and gather together because we are closer to the day of Jesus 2.0 than we've ever been before. By God's grace, we love our church. Love our church by encouraging one another, by, the, by, by gathering together. By stirring up one another, provoking one another to love and good works. By God's grace. So the commands in this passage, they um, seem sort of high. Would you agree? I agree. In fact, I, I feel, and I'll just put this straight out, the Bible feels that these, pass, these, these standards are so high that we will doubtless fail to meet them. We will attempt to meet them we will try to meet them. We will try to do those things. We will, uh, you heard me read earlier, um, we, the individual covenant 
um, reads somewhat differently, but it says this, by God's grace, I will grow in my love and knowledge of Jesus through personal and group discipleship, but there will be days and there will be weeks and maybe even months when I fail at that. I will fail at that. I'll stand up here today as your pastor and say, I will fail at that this year in 2016. That I will not grow in my love and knowledge of Jesus as I should. I will fail at that. So what then? By God's grace, I will worship God with other believers in the gatherings of the church. Well, by God's grace, I hope I do. But what if I fail at that as well? What if I drop out? What if, I, what if I don't give generously and systematically at times? What if I hide my spiritual gifts and my talents and service to God through the church? And I don't use those as I should. Well, we will fail at that. And you will fail at that. It's going to happen. We will fail. And the longer we live, <laughs> the longer you all have lived, I bet we could go with our oldest folks here and they could tell you they could give you a longer list of failures than our young people could guaranteed but there's one who has not failed and this is what we what we stake our claim on this is what we are grounded on as a church he has never failed he never failed in life he was faithful in fact in his death and he will not fail and has not failed in his resurrection. Jesus knew our creator perfectly, went into his presence without sin, so we could follow him and have our sins and our failures forgiven and cleaned. Jesus kept the faith perfectly. He believed the promise of the Father. He hoped for what was to come. The writer of Hebrews says this elsewhere. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of God. There was joy beyond his suffering, and he was willing to be obedient, to suffer and to die. He kept the faith. Jesus loved the church perfectly. Considered us. He considered us. He thought about us. And he came. He came to be born as a little baby. We just celebrated that recently. He dwelt with us. He met us there. He, the writer of Ephesians, Paul, says this, that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for it. And Jesus himself, in his last supper discourse, John 15, said this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, he said to those who are gathered there. That's what he has done to love the church. Laid down his life for them. By God's grace. That's what it's all about. That grace is available because of Jesus. He makes it possible to know our Creator. To keep our faith. To love our church. But not everyone has experienced God, God's grace, have they? I didn't point this out earlier. I saved it till now. The very first thing he says in this passage that we read today and looked at today, he says, therefore, brothers. He's talking to believers in Christ. He's talking to fellow Christians. <laughs> those who have put their faith in Jesus. He writes to them, 
who hope in Him, Jesus, who have made Jesus their greatest treasure. Those are the ones who will experience grace. And you, you will not have any other hope, any other assurance, apart from God's grace in Christ. That's available to each and every one of us. It's available to our families. It's available to our neighbors. It's available to our co-workers and every person we encounter who does not have faith in Christ by God's grace. By God's grace, we can put our faith in Jesus alone. <clears throat> Will you respond to that offer? That's the question. Will you respond to His offer of grace that He wants to give you today? Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank You for Thank you for this word. <clears throat> God, thank you for your grace. For making a way for us to be with you. God, thank you for creating your church. For us to be a part of that truly by God's grace we can experience the fellowship of being your family here on earth. That by your grace, God, we can grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus and gather together and be a part of community together. We can give and use our gifts that You have given us. God, we love You. I pray that, God, You will do something great through Your church because this is your family, God. It is not mine. It does not belong to any um, one person here. <clears throat> you are the great priest over the household of God that is here worshiping in Moxie with the name the River Church. You are our high priest. You are our shepherd as you've called us and told us before as well. God, we love you. I pray that each one of us will respond in the way that you have called us to respond and the way you desire us to respond today. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.